It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Third Coast Podcast. I'm Katie Mingle. You'll hear our weekly radio show, ReSound, here, as well as the occasional story curated recently from our audio library at thirdcoastfestival.org. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit organization whose livelihood depends in part on support from listeners like you. To find out how you can help or to check out all of the cool stuff we do apart from our radio show, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Thanks, and enjoy the podcast. After Mother died, I found a box full of audio tapes. Thursday, September 21st, 1961. Dr. Martin Orn with Anne Sexton. Okay, Anne, let's begin. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. When my dad married my mother, he hadn't married a poet. He married, you know, a young girl who wanted to be a housewife and mother. Then she, you know, she went mad and and began to write poetry and became famous. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little audio sketches we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and then bring you the best of what we hear each week. I have found the warm caves in the woods, filled them with skillets, carving, shelves, closets, silks, innumerable goods. What is it you strive for? Someone to look at me and tell me I'm all right, or to hit me. Being hit is like taking pills. Poet Anne Sexton suffered from mental illness all her life and often referred to her poetry as therapy. In fact, it was her long-term therapist who first suggested she try her hand at it. In short order, she became one of America's best-loved poets and in 1967 even won the Pulitzer Prize. But for all the accolades she earned, her personal life was tumultuous and difficult. It's the frank and surprising treatment of Sexton's darker side that caught our attention in our next story. Sexton's daughters speak very candidly, for the first time together, about their famous mother, and we hear tapes of her private sessions with her therapist, made public after her 1974 suicide. Here is Consorting with Angels, produced by Charlotte Austin. <clears throat> one, two, one, two. Thursday, September 21st, 1961. Dr. Martin Orn with Anne Sexton. Okay, Anne, let's begin. 
You say you had a dream last night. This perfect voice was enunciating very carefully, as if to tell me exactly how it was. He keeps telling me what's so, and probably he's right, but it isn't so for me, so I've got to try again to make the same thing so for both of us, so we can make sense to each other. Otherwise, I'm crazy. I'm lost. If you can talk to one person, you're not crazy. Right. One sane person, that is. Mother had a particular recording that she listened to over and over again when she was writing. It really takes me back, you know. It makes me remember. You cannot save somebody. If someone is going to implode and uh, destroy herself, there's nothing you can do. I felt uh, stupid and guilty and, uh, well, you learn to live with your mistakes. Poets do tend to push the limits, not only in their writing, but in their preparation for writing. I think we all want to get to the place where the images are and discover new things. I have gone out a possessed witch, haunting the black air, braver at night, dreaming evil. I have done my hitch over the plain houses, light by light. Lonely thing, twelve-fingered, out of mind. A woman like that is not a woman quite. I have been her kind. I have found the warm caves in the woods, filled them with skillets, carving, shelves, closets, silks, innumerable goods, fixed the suppers for the worms and the elves, whining, rearranging the disaligned. A woman like that is misunderstood. I have been her kind. I have ridden in your cart, driver, waved my nude arms at villages going by, learning the last bright roots, survivor where your flames still bite my thigh, and my ribs crack where your wheels wind. A woman like that is not ashamed to die. I have been her kind. Anne Sexton's youngest daughter is Joyce Sexton. Her desk was in a corner of our family room. There were built-in bookshelves above the desk, and there were lots of small uh, notes or quotes taped up around the lower bookshelf. She loved to work in this little nook. Linda Gray Sexton is Anne's eldest daughter. She had an old battered desk with a leather top. She had a very lovely small desk lamp that threw a yellow glow so that when she was working, she was kind of illuminated by that. Her back was to the room. I think what was most important to her was to have quiet <laughs> and that when we were children that we didn't interrupt her. My sister and I tiptoed around 
a great deal when she was writing in those early years without understanding what was going on. I think the main thing for me was that when she was writing, she wasn't crazy and she wasn't in the hospital. When she was really far gone into a depression, she couldn't write at all. A hospital encases everything, mostly your soul. And so what do I do in my old age? I keep going into nut houses where you, they lock you up. Perfect circle. After Mother died, I found a box full of audio tapes. They were audio tapes of her sessions with her psychiatrist. So I took them out, I listened to them. Um, they were very painful to listen to. I love Joy. Never loved Linda. Something comes between me and Linda. I hate her and slap her in the face, never for anything naughty. I, I just seem to be constantly harming her. She was not a very hands-on mother. Her own life was so busy and so full, there wasn't a lot of room for us. I realize, with guilt, that I am a woman, that it should be the children or my husband or my home not writing. But it is not. Oh, I do love my children, but am not feminine enough to be all lost in their care. It wears me. I believe there was a climactic experience, if you will, where my mother confessed to a neighbor that she was afraid that she was going to hurt us. And uh, the neighbor notified my dad who came home, and uh, we were both immediately removed. We were battered by the illness because we didn't understand what was going on. People withdrew because of the illness, didn't understand or were vaguely horrified or extremely horrified. Tell them we're fake. Turn around. We're fake. We don't love each other at all. We hate each other and despise each other. We just can't bear each other. It's a horrible loving between us. Oh, my. It's so easy to be natural when you've got this. I mean, that's for real. I was spared the level of uh, her madness that was very, very present during those early years. But my sister went back to my mom quite early, and um, during that time, my mom was hospitalized uh, periodically. By the time we got to a poem like The Double Image, she was seeing repetitions of her relation, her rocky relationship with her mother as it mirrored itself in her growing relationship with my sister. So the feminine role as mother was really played out in that poem. Extracts from the Double Image I am 30 this November. You are still small in your fourth year. We stand watching the yellow leaves go queer, flapping in the winter rain, falling flat and washed. And I remember mostly the three autumns you did not live here. They said I'd never get you back again. I tell you what you'll never really know. All the medical hypotheses that explain my brain will never be as true as these struck leaves letting go. I, who chose two times to kill myself, had said your nickname the mewling months when you first came, until a fever rattled in your throat and I moved like a pantomime above your head. 
ugly angels spoke to me. The blame, I heard them say, was mine. They tattled like green witches in my head, letting doom leak like a broken faucet. As if doom had flooded my belly and filled your bassinet, an old debt, I must assume. I remember we named you Joyce, so we could call you Joy. You came like an awkward guest that first time, all wrapped and moist and strange at my heavy breast. I needed you. I didn't want a boy, only a girl, a small milky mouse of a girl already loved, already loud in the house of herself. We named you Joy. I, who was never quite sure about being a girl, needed another life, another image to remind me. And this was my worst guilt. You could not cure nor soothe it. I made you to find me. If what we've heard is true about her mother's coldness and tendency to criticize, then she may well have had to be wary of her constantly. Anne Rouse is a poet and former psychiatric nurse. Her particular disturbance had to do with incursions on her, on her privacy, on her sexuality, on her sense of identity, possibly from both parents, when Sexton was a child. Her relationship with her father was, was tricky. She wished so much that they could have some intense yet appropriate relationship, which proved to be very difficult. Eventually, she began to wonder whether or not she had been sexually abused, and she wrote about that, but she was never 100% sure that her unconscious wasn't dredging this up. I think her unconscious may have gone into overdrive and spilled out into ordinary life. So yes, I, th I think she, yeah, she had a very creative relationship with the truth for various reasons. Her inner life, she would talk about more freely with me than with some others. The poet J.D. McClatchy was a close friend of Anne Sexton. We became good friends, I think, because I became an audience and she was given a new chance to perform. But I was never sure what was, what was fact and what was fantasy. At times, I remember coming home late at night from a restaurant and we would sit in her living room and knock back, you know, another couple of vodkas and uh, she would play music. She said, talked about her father having raped her. And to tell you the honest truth, I don't know whether that was true or not. Okay, Ann. Tell me about your father. Father comes in drunk, wakes me up saying, I just wanted to see where he were. Sits on the bed, takes a bottle out of his pocket and drinks. I asked where mommy was. Gone to bed and locked the door. He says, do you like me? He's holding me. He kissed me on the lips. And he started to leave. And I held on and didn't want him to go. Then he came back, left his bottle on the table. 
Sexton had a great deal of difficulty remembering the content of her interviews with Dr. Orme. She would go into a trance state and find that afterwards uh, she retained very little of what had been said. Your problems with memory are symptoms that some part of you knows a lot about. This taping process, recording our conversations, gives you a tool, enables you to work with that part of yourself. I think it'll be important for you to listen to this tape. There's a lot there. Am I ever going to work through this? That's what you're doing. That's what I'm doing? Extracts from All My Pretty Ones Father, this year's jinx rides us apart, where you followed our mother to her cold slumber, a second shock boiling its stone to your heart, leaving me here to shuffle and disencumber you from the residence you could not afford, a gold key, your half of a woolen mill, twenty suits from Dunn's, an English Ford, the love and legal verbiage of another will, boxes of pictures of people I do not know. I touch their cardboard faces. They must go. I hold a five-year diary that my mother kept for three years, telling all she does not say of your alcoholic tendency. You overslept, she writes. My God, Father, each Christmas day with your blood will I drink down your glass of wine. The diary of your hurly-burly years goes to my shelf to wait for my age to pass. Only in this hoarded span will love persevere. Whether you are pretty or not, I outlive you. Bend down my strange face to yours and forgive you. She was divided at her very root, in a sense. Her unconscious mind would have had to take a back seat, and the two became separate. What is it you strive for? Someone to look at me and tell me I'm all right, or to hit me. Being hit is like taking pills, destroying a part of me, squashing it. The relationship my mother and father had was complicated. Everybody had a complicated relationship with my mother. Their relationship moved from a very intense love to a nurturing love to episodes of violence. Mother would be very provocative with her speech. Then he would lose control and end up uh, hitting her. At the same time, she would be hitting herself there was always a, a fear on both Linda's and my part that they would start to fight and violence would erupt. It wasn't a very safe house. We had to try and protect mother. We had to try and call the police in time. There were a lot of incidents where we were called upon to intervene. When my dad married my mother, he hadn't married a poet. He married, you know, a young girl who wanted to be a housewife and mother. Then she, you know, she went mad and, and began to write poetry and became famous. My husband hates the way I read poems. He says, you sound like a minister. Darling, come here. Come here. Come here, honey. Don't be shy of the stupid television camera. Come here. For me, will you come here and tell me about it? No, come on. <laughs>
He struggled with trying to be, quote, kind of the man of the house with a woman who was incredibly powerful. It's not that I'm beautiful. It's just that I can make some men fall in love with me. Ever since my mother died, I want to have the feeling someone's in love with me. I went to see her. I knocked at the door. One of her daughters answered and said, well, Mother, she asked if you come upstairs and you can talk to her uh, in her bedroom. I did, and she began instantly to complain about her health, particularly her teeth, which were giving her a great deal of trouble. And I have other troubles, she said. I have very sensitive nipples. You'll see. I, I was just dumbfounded. Uh, I was terrified, and I was hooked at the same time. I wouldn't want to have an orgasm in front of you, but no, that is it. Listen. Boundaries were the one thing she had the most trouble with. There were a number of poets with whom she had affairs or tried to involve in affairs. Mother sexualized many relationships that she had in inappropriate ways. Extracts from Flea on Your Donkey Because there was no other place to flee to, I came back to the scene of the disordered senses, came back last night at midnight, arriving in the thick June night without luggage or defenses. This is madness, but a kind of hunger. What good are my questions in this hierarchy of death, where the earth and the stones go din, 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 it is hardly a feast. It is my stomach that makes me suffer. Turn my hungers, for once make a deliberate decision. There are brains that rot here like black bananas. Hearts have grown as flat as dinner plates. Anne, Anne, flee on your donkey. Flee this sad hotel. Ride out on some hairy beast. Gallop backward, pressing your buttocks to his withers. Sit to his clumsy gait somehow. Ride out any old way you please. In this place, everyone talks to his own mouth. That's what it means to be crazy. Those I loved best died of it. The fool's disease. In the later years, she stopped taking her prescribed dosages and went on to self-medicate with alcohol and very quickly became a true, full-blown full alcoholic. You see somebody destroying herself and you want to help, and the only thing you can think to do is say, oh, sure, I'll get up and, and pour you another vodka. So you become complicit in the destruction I felt uh, stupid and guilty, and, uh, well, you learn to live with your mistakes. We tried not to think about what was happening until it was upon us. We tried to cheer her up. We just, we didn't know what to do. She would get to the bottom of the depression, and that was when she would try to commit suicide. The depression becomes overwhelming after a time, and then you just know um, we all knew that it was only a matter of time before she tried again. It felt like she was going down a rabbit hole. I think I was beginning to kind of chalk some of it off to histrionics. To be honest, I mean, I think that maybe that was how I coped with it. 
for me, there still is that struggle of how much of her madness was uh, was. It sounds so terrible to say this was a choice. Wanting to die. Since you ask, most days I cannot remember. I walk in my clothing, unmarked by that voyage. Then the almost unnameable lust returns. Even then, I have nothing against life. I know well the grass blades you mention, the furniture you have placed under the sun. But suicides have a special language. Like carpenters, they want to know which tools. They never ask why build. Twice I have so simply declared myself, have possessed the enemy, eaten the enemy, have taken on his craft, his magic. In this way, heavy and thoughtful, warmer than oil or water, I have rested drooling at the mouth hole. Balanced there, suicides sometimes meet, raging at the fruit, a pumped up moon, leaving the bread they mistook for a kiss, leaving the page of the book carelessly open, something unsaid, the phone off the hook, and the love, whatever it was, an infection. Looking back, I can say that I did some things that were cruel because I didn't understand what any of this really was. I just felt so angry with her. I thought she should grow up and take responsibility. When she was hospitalized, I refused to go to visit her. I wouldn't talk to her on the phone some of the time. I mean, I did a variety of things that I regret now. Often I was I was anxious. She was pretty out of control, mercurial, very, very, very depressed, very promiscuous. And I left the house. I, I moved out. And I felt badly about that. I felt like I was abandoning her. But I, I, I couldn't stay. I couldn't stay. Consorting with Angels I was tired of being a woman, tired of the spoons and the pots, tired of my mouth and my breasts, tired of the cosmetics and the silks. There were still men who sat at my table, circled around the bowl I offered up. The bowl was filled with purple grapes, and the flies hovered in for the scent, and even my father came with his white bone. But I was tired of the gender of things. Last night I had a dream, and I said to it, You are the answer. You will outlive my husband and my father. In that dream there was a city made of chains, where Joan was put to death in man's clothes, and the nature of the angels went unexplained, no two made in the same species, one with a nose, one with an ear in its hand, one chewing a star and recording its orbit, each one like a poem obeying itself, performing God's functions, a people apart. You are the answer, I said, and entered lying down on the gates of the city. Then the chains were fastened around me, and I lost my common gender and my final aspect. Adam was on the left of me, and Eve was on the right of me, both thoroughly inconsistent with the world of reason. We wove our arms together and rode under the sun. 
I was not a woman anymore, not one thing or the other. O daughters of Jerusalem, the king has brought me into his chamber. I am black and I am beautiful. I've been opened and undressed. I have no arms or legs. I'm all one skin like a fish. I'm no more a woman than Christ was a man. For many, many years, we've been expecting her to die. It, it wasn't something unexpected. So I felt relieved, and I felt relieved that it was all over, that there were no more crises, that there were no more going to the hospitals. It was over. There was peace. We'd gone crashing finally over that waterfall into the calm waters on the other side. My first reaction was relief, then followed by guilt and sadness. I would like to be able to say, I forgive you, but I'm not sure I could. My mother asked me to read this to her once. She was sitting in the chair that squeaked and I was sitting on the couch. And she cried. A little uncomplicated hymn for joy is what I wanted to write. You will jump to it some day, as you will jump out of the pitch of this house. It will be a holiday, a parade, a fiesta. Then you'll fly. You'll really fly. After that, you'll quite simply, quite calmly, make your own stones, your own floor plan, your own sound. I look for uncomplicated hymns, but love has none. I think that her prophecy came true in many ways. I made my, I made my own floor plan. I have my own sound. My mother used to sing me a particular lullaby, and it sounds like this. Night, night time has come for Linda Gray. Night, night time, the same time every day. It's night, night time. It's night, night time. Night, night time has come. Okay, you got me to sing it. <laughs> Consorting with Angels was produced by Charlotte Austin for Whistledown Productions on BBC Radio 4. Transcripts of Anne Sexton's therapy sessions were read by Lorelai King and Dan Russell. The poems were read by Lorelai King and Anne Sexton herself. To hear other amazing treatments of poetry on the radio by producers all over the world, visit our audio library at thirdcoastfestival.org. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, Chicago's Navy Pier, and American Airlines. This program is partially supported by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. You've been listening to the Third Coast Podcast. Now that it's over, here are a few suggestions. Become our fan on Facebook. Write us a review on iTunes. Buy a t-shirt in our merch shop or make a donation to support what we do at thirdcoastfestival.org. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.